Welcome to Season 4 of The Farcast, bringing you experts and insiders every week to help you navigate the economic and investing landscape. And now, here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to The Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again this week on October the 22nd. We are now about 10 days maybe nine days, I haven't counted. Uh, from the uh, big presidential election, we have a debate tonight, the last one. Vice President Biden and President Trump will face one another live on the air, just the way we do the forecast, live. Here we go. And uh, But we don't mute our guests' microphones. That will happen tonight, and they will have, we think, uh, two minutes of uninterrupted responses. Uh, some have questioned, uh, whether President Trump might run over to Pre Vice President Biden's uh, open microphone just to get a word in edgewise. He hasn't been big on social distancing. I think anything is possible. Uh, this is must-see TV, folks. Uh, not about the pol politics, but you just want to be able to say that you watch this one and tell your grandchildren not to let this happen to them uh, at some point when you're involved in their formative years. All righty. Well, a terrific forecast for you this morning as we address what's going on with markets and investing covering Wall Street, Washington, and the world. First, we get to start out with a forecast fan favorite, one of your... And, and thank you for your letters. Why have we got notes from folks uh, in, in the UK? We got... Uh, I even uh, got invited, invited to play uh, a Royal St. George's by one of our listeners last week. Uh, I appreciate that. And, and believe me, I'm going to show up. Uh, joining us now, and perhaps we'll get him to come play Royal St. George's when we travel, Jim Labenthal uh, is the uh, chief equity strategist uh, at Serity Partners. He has over 25 years of experience managing investment portfolios, regular contributor on CNBC, particularly on the halftime report. Uh, when you see Labenthal, take it off a of mute and listen, I promise. He has a bachelor's, listen to this, a bachelor's in molecular biology from Princeton. You know, Kernan really thinks he's uh, quite the big deal because, what is he, molecular, is he, he's, he's biochemistry? What, what's his degree in, Jim? Do you remember? I don't remember, but biochemistry and molecular biology are very similar. Jim went to uh, Princeton, has his MBA from Wharton, and is a CFA. Hey, welcome back, Jim. Oh, Michael, thank you. What a great introduction. Love being on the show with you. Thank you for having me. We, we love it. Now keep that Royal St. George's in mind. Start working on your handicap. Uh, Jim, stocks have been back and forth this week, a little bit in a seesaw pattern. Uh, all seem to be surrounding a new headline about whether we're going to get stimulus, whether we're not going to get stimulus, whether Pelosi likes Mnuchin or Mnuchin likes Pelosi. And then we keep hearing that the Senate's not going to pass anything, so I don't know why we're talking about it. Uh, and we're going to have a vote today on Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, at least in committee, which will be voted on by the full Senate on Monday. What are you making from markets here, and what are you paying attention to, Jim? Well, first let me say I think you gave the name to uh, future sitcoms there. Pelosi <laughs> likes Mnuchin, Mnuchin <laughs> likes Pelosi. Um, <laughs> um, listen, That's a riot. The market, the market is going back and forth on the prospects for fiscal stimulus, and it's going back and forth very rapidly. The upshot of which is, if you think you can time these sort of headlines, I think you're fooling yourself, and I don't think you should. I think what you should do as an investor, and what you and I do, Michael, is we set out 
what we believe is going to happen, not what we know. We're not so arrogant and conceited as to think we know the future, but we believe certain things. Here's what I believe. I believe you will get fiscal stimulus, most likely right after the election. The, the tea leaves don't seem to be lining up uh, for it to happen prior to that. Uh, the fiscal stimulus is necessary. I think it will support the market. It may not take it to any new highs, but it will support the market. Uh, necessary when you've got 10 million people unemployed and 30% capacity right. uh, idolization. But right. the next thing that we need, and I believe we will get, is a vaccine or meaningful treatment to blunt the edge of this dreaded virus. And I think you'll see that in the first quarter of next year. As early as the first quarter. You know, that's very interesting, uh, Jim. I, I think to differentiate what you know from what you believe is probably maybe one of the, the most important thing you need to be mindful of as an investor. What I know versus what I believe, because those lines can so often be blurred. So what, what do we know in the market right now? We know that markets are still trading near all-time highs. Interest rates are still very low. The Fed is at hand. Uh, does this lead you to be bullish, Jim? It, it leads me to be not bearish. Let me start with that because I think it's important. You know, we haven't been talking too much about the Fed recently because their, their hand has been on the scale now for seven odd months. And it's an effective hand that has, I'm, I'm going to mix metaphors here, uh, boosted the stock market and kept support under it. That matters because if if something untoward happens on November 4th, and I don't need to go through the hypotheticals, everybody's got the scenarios in their minds, but let's say something bad happens and we're unresolved for several weeks. The fact that the Fed has kept interest rates low, the fact that they're going to continue to buy bonds, the fact that they think they have more tools to employ should be enough to keep the market from doing anything worse than correcting. And corrections happen all the time. In fact, they can be opportunities if you have cash on the sidelines, they can be an opportunity to deploy that cash. If you don't have cash, it can be an opportunity to rejigger your portfolio, sell the things that you think are fairly valued, and redeploy the capital into those names that are undervalued. But the point, let me make this clear. I don't see a crash coming, not with the Fed being as strong as it is, as well as central banks around the world. But a correction wouldn't surprise you. And a correction could be 10%. A correction could be as much as 20%. Yeah, I, it can. You are correct in your terminology. I'd be surprised, though, if it went more than 10 percent. Uh, you know, you and I talk to a lot of our, our uh, colleagues in the industry, and there is a lot of cash on the sidelines. Yeah. Now, I, I speak that anecdotally, but also the figures of outflows from equity funds, both mutual funds and ETFs, support that. And the fact of the matter is money managers who are sitting on cash have felt uncomfortable. I'm one of them. Um, it has felt uncomfortable these last six, seven months, and I would love to get that cash to work in a 10% correction, and I wouldn't be worried about going down to 20% again because of the effect of the Fed. So uh, could, it, could we go down as much as 20%? Of course we can. I just don't think it's very likely. Uh, this, is, this is perfect because you're leading me into my next question. If we saw that 10% correction, and yes, I think a lot of money managers have had cash on the sidelines, and perhaps very prudently, not knowing what markets would do through a pandemic that no one has seen before. You know, everybody wants to look in the rearview mirror, Jim, and say, ah, well, here's what you should have done. Great. Uh, let's hearken back to, you know, May and figure out what we knew and what we didn't know 
uh, what we didn't know was a lot, and what we still don't know is significant. So, uh, given you know that maybe prudent that we uh, held on to some cash and that we could get it to work in here. Uh, we have seen a bit of a shift away from the FANG stocks, the tech stocks that have been leading everything. The industrials and a lot of the value stocks have caught a bid. Is that what you would buy on a 10% pullback, or are you waiting for that next Facebook, Amazon opportunity? Well, that's a, that's a great question, and it's one that the answer to which is on my mind quite a bit. Let's start with this. The, the rotation, <clears throat> the broadening of the rally to which you refer, uh, has had one very benevolent uh, uh, aspect to it, which is that the fangs have not crashed. Uh, technology in general has not crashed. Uh, it's come down a little bit, and it's flatlined recently. Sure, something like a Fastly has had a comeuppance, but that's just one name. In general, the fang stocks have held in there, while the industrials in particular have caught one heck of a massive bid over the last five, six weeks. And take a look at a Caterpillar, for instance. I mean, that yeah. chart is a thing of beauty. Yeah. Or General Motors. Um, yeah. Would I buy them here? Yes, because you're supposed to have a balanced portfolio. But I'll tell you what interests me, and this may be a little bit controversial, is the financials. Here's why. The industrials are rallying on the prospects of infrastructure spending uh, as well as supply chain onshoring. But you know yes. what? That's, that's been anticipated for several months. So there's no rhyme or reason why the last month in particular industrials have rallied. In the same fashion, when you look at financials, at some point the Fed will allow the financials to buy back their shares. At some point the pandemic ends and loan losses decrease. In fact, in the most recent uh, earnings reports, you've certainly seen a massive reduction in loan loss reserves. And my point being is <clears throat> just as the market is capricious in when it decides to anticipate industrials doing better, so the same thing will happen with financials. I think you need to have a, a balanced portfolio that includes uh, some exposure to financials, which will take off when they take off. Well, do you, do you have financials in your portfolio now? I mean, I've had some financials in my portfolio all the way. I mean, I don't trade very often, Jim. Uh, and so I have a couple of core financial positions uh, in the banks. Uh, that I continue to like very much and, and am holding, uh, though I have some trepidation. Do you, do you have a core that you hold all the time, or do you get completely out of the banks? Well, no, I, I just like you, so very similar to what you just said. My core holdings right now, Citigroup, Goldman Sachs, um, over the years, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, uh, and I think those can be core holdings. Yeah. I don't trade much either, but I think if you were interested in trading, if you said, hey, you know what, I, I think now is the time, then you look at something like a Blackstone or a KKR, something of, with a little bit more pizzazz, for lack of a better word. But I do think you have to have those core holdings. You don't have to overweight the sector, but don't underweight it. Not, not at these values. You're missing out on a return that will come. Let me just uh, give you a little bit of pushback in terms of timing here, because a lot of the banks have uh, gone into periods of forbearance on a lot of their loans. And one of the reasons, I think, that the Fed has said, uh, no, uh, we want you to stop your dividends, we want you to stop the buybacks, we need you to reserve cash, is because when you come to the end of a period of forbearance, somebody takes a hit. Somebody has to account for a loss. And bank balance sheets uh, could be uh, could be really in a bit of jeopardy, particularly if the stimulus bill gets into the next year and the economy continues to lag. We could see further weakness in the banks. 
Uh, does that concern you? Because I'm, I'm thinking, I'm just, I'm just arguing about timing. Certainly, I've been early in so many stocks when I bought them before, and you end up holding, you know, longer than you thought you would through another downward leg uh, in price. But you know, you, you you do that as a part of investor. Does that next leg down concern you? Uh, of course, and in fact, that is, I think, why banks did not rally on earnings last week that were actually pretty good. Uh, really quite good. Now, yes. they were good in part because loan loss reserves, those reserves taken yes. in future loan yes. uh, defaults, uh, were lower than people expected. And so the market said exactly what you're saying. Hey, wait a second. More loan losses are coming. Are you guys prepared? Bear in mind that the second quarter and the third quarter, these banks took massive, massive loan loss reserves. And maybe just to come to the punchline, Take a look at Citigroup, 60% of book value. Goldman Sachs, 90% of book value. That is the market's way of saying exactly what you just said, that there is a risk of future loan losses. I think, though, Citigroup at 60%, I think that's overestimating uh, how much of their loan losses are likely to actually occur. Um, and therein lies the opportunity. But you've put your, your finger on the button of what the issue is with these banks today. Let's uh, finish up here, Jim, with a little bit of advice for clients. I'm struck that when uh, emotions run high among clients, uh, they form their own narratives about what, what am I going to do with all of this emotion? Uh, I hear from clients that they are uh, petrified about the outcome of this presidential election. Doesn't matter what side they're on. Both sides are petrified. The other side's going to win, and nobody's particularly sanguine if their side wins. You know, <laughs> my guy gets in, but I still don't think that's going to be great. The other guy gets in, and I think that's going to be awful. And here's what's going to happen, Michael, when that happens. And 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 here's and, and they start uh, they start telling me, you know, uh, I know uh, at that point that these following things are going to happen, and therefore we have to sell everything in the portfolio or we have to buy everything on this side of the list. What do you do? What do you tell clients when they call you and they are clearly anxious and clearly fearful uh, about their investments? Well, number one, you have to be very respectful of people's feelings. And you can't just say things like, oh, I think you're wrong. Um, you know, there's some bedside <laughs> manner that, that comes into play here. Now, Jane, you, you I, ignorant <laughs> slut. Yes, it's not probably the way to start that conversation. Yeah. Michael, you and I have some experience and the market has put some tire treads on our back. Um, with that, I say, whenever people say, I know what's going to happen and I want to move all to cash or I want to be all in in the stock market, I say to them, you have to know two things. You have to know the outcome of an event such as the election. And you have to know how the market's going to respond. And even if you know number one, you oftentimes don't know number two. The upshot of which is don't try to market time. And I'm not trying to be some trite financial advisor or equity portfolio manager. You couldn't be if you wanted to, to Labenthal. You're much too wise. <laughs> you, you, you trite, trite. Nobody would ever think Labenthal's trite. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Thank you. Take a look at a 100-year chart of the S&P 500. Now, I know people are going to say, hey, Jimmy, don't take me back to the age of dinosaurs. I'm not. What I'm saying is if you look at that chart over any multi-year period, five, seven, 10 years, the chart goes up and to the oh, right. Yes. And you have to, you look at a, you know, 100 different events, World War II, the great financial crisis, 9-11. The correct thing to do was to buckle your seatbelt and get through it. 
And if you think you can market time, I think March of this year has given us a great lesson in how hard it is to do. Because so many people thought the virus was going to get terrible, terrible. And it did. It got awful. And yeah. the right thing to do was to stay invested. And people who moved to cash in March and April, they regretted it. They've chased this market. I strongly try to counsel my clients with the wisdom of, of decades now. Don't try to market time. Get your asset allocation. Trust your advisor and get through whatever seemingly world-ending event is occurring at the time. Jim Labenthal is the chief equity strategist at Serity Partners. Over 25 years of experience in managing money, regular contributor on CNBC. Listen to Labenthal is my motto. I may have T-shirts made, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Listen to Labenthal. Thank you, Jim, so much for being on the forecast. We always learn so much. Michael, I always end these with a big smile on my face, and I thank you for that. Great way to start the day. Thank you. Our, our listeners do, too. Gentlemen, we're going to come back with Dan Mahaffey. We're going to hear about the debate tonight, the, uh, uh, the committee meeting today uh, for the Judiciary Committee, what's going to happen with Amy Coney Barrett, and whether this debate tonight actually matters. And finally, I'm going to ask him why, yes, uh, isn't good isn't a good enough answer for um, uh, Mrs. Uh, Pelosi and uh, Mr. Mnuchin when we come back on the forecast. Thank you for joining us on this week's forecast. Every week we bring you experts and insiders to give a deeper understanding of our changing world. If you would be interested in Michael Farr delivering a presentation on the economic forecast for 2021 and beyond, please contact me, Harry Jennings, at 202-530-5608 or email me at hjennings at farmiller.com. In the past, Michael has delivered presentations at such venues as the Palm Beach Chamber of Commerce, the YPO Economic Summit, and the University of Delaware Economic Forecast. We are booking now for late 2020 and early 2021 for events where Michael will share his views into the recovery from the pandemic, including the consequences of the stimulus and the opportunities for investors. Reserve your date now on Michael Farr's speaking schedule. And now, back to Michael and the Farcast. Welcome back to the Farcast, and now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back. Joining me now, the great, the powerful wizard, Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, and of greatest importance, of course, senior political analyst on the Farcast. Welcome back, Dan. Good morning, Michael, and thank you. And God forbid, don't tell him to look behind the curtain and figure out what the wizard's really up to. No, we've got Toto uh, tied up outside. Uh, and uh, don't SPCA members give me a break. Uh, he's got a wonderful bed and a full food bowl of food and water. Toto's very happy, but he's going to leave Mahaffey alone this morning. Uh, Dan, here we go again. Not much to talk about, of course, again this week in the world of politics. God help us all. Yeah, happy, happy March 235th, 2020. We're just, we're Honest still there. God, yeah. it, it really, it really is amazing. It just won't end. So, uh, Dan. Uh, let's let's talk about the uh, election math and how things are changing coming into this morning. We have a debate tonight, Vice President mm -hmm. Biden and President Trump, and they're going to mute the microphones for the, oh, for yeah. the uh, complete two minutes. 
Uh, I've got this vision of, of President Trump running over to Vice President Biden's microphone just to say, he's wrong, he's wrong. Well, uh, well I, that'll be fun because he'd have to knock down the plexiglass shield between them as well. So that would that would. Just are you suggesting that the president would not not knock down the plexiglass shield? Oh, I'm I'm certain he would, and that and that would just be a perfect metaphor for for all of this. That the yes. the, the president knocks down the virus protection shield just to yell in the microphone about how someone criticizing him is wrong. It would be poetic. It, it's it, I think that and the electoral college ending in a two sixty nine two sixty nine tie. Those would be the two most 2020 things that can happen this year. The most 2020 things that could happen this year. Uh, given that we are having the 2020 president uh, election here in, what is it, nine days now, something like that, 10 days. Uh, tell us, Dan, has the math changed for this election coming up? Uh, where does the race stand now? Coming down to the wire, around the far turn, ladies right, and gentlemen, right. coming into the stretch. <laughs> Neck and neck is, I think, where you're seeing it still in these swing states. Biden's poll numbers are strong. He's got momentum nationally. He's pulling ahead in some of them, like Pennsylvania. There's still this momentum of, and, and I think a fundamental gut factor when you look at a race and say the Republicans are on defense, not just in Ohio, but now in Iowa, Georgia, and Texas. And that changes a map where the president Trump would be so reliant on Florida and the Rust Belt states that they're they're playing defense in the states that they didn't even expect to be contesting at this point. So that that is the one factor that tells you sort of the overall gut of this is continuing to be pro-Biden. What we don't know, and still that that 20 percent that still has President Trump, uh, President Trump's ability to win, still that 20 percent probability comes down to just how much turnout do we get from Is white that voters. it, Dan? Wait a minute. Is that it? There's only a 20% chance that the president gets reelected? I would say that's about 20% right now that he gets reelected. 20%? You know, zero, all, I, I, listen, I'm in Florida zero. and all my Republican Trump friends are saying, don't underestimate him. I have a feeling he's going to go, you, you've done this before. You, you people in the media, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not in the media. I'm a money manager. But anyway, uh, I get, get lambasted. I'm saying 20%, Michael. And you're, you're the. Tell the ask your Florida friends if I'm saying 20%, would they take a gun with five bullets with five bullet chamber and and spin it? And the, you know, 20% is not a, an insignificant chance for the president to get reelected. It was, and you understand the 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 way that it would work comes down to is we just can't gauge the turnout if the polling white non-college educated voters who are going to flock to President Trump. That's the only way there is this this silent majority that they talk of that I think would be that 20% probability. Okay, so uh, ladies and gentlemen, a lot of this, of course, is very important as we look at Wall Street and as we look at the economy. The stimulus bill certainly seems stalled for now. Right. As we know, we have an economy that is driven 70% by the consumer and with a 10% unemployment rate. 10% unemployment rate, anywhere in there, folks, 8%, 8.5%, you've got a very high underemployment rate, which is U6, and that covers all of those workers who are working part-time, who would like to work full-time, uh, and, uh, and, and others, those who are discouraged and not looking for jobs and so on. Uh, 
there's a huge cohort out there not making money, is the point. And if your consumer's not making money, they don't have anything with which to drive the economy. Mm -hmm. That brings us back to a stimulus relief aid package, whatever the hell you want to call that money. That money has to get into the economy if you're going to see the economy kind of flourish. And Fed presidents from around the country have been going to microphones saying, we need this package. We can't do any more. We've got to get money in the hands of the people. Dan, if that doesn't come until January, right. okay, if it yeah. doesn't come until yeah. January, how is that going to get to the economic data? How will they have money to spend? And what happens to Wall Street during the interim period? Well, that's again the big question for Congress. I do. I, the Senate is still dug in on the on the overall size of this package. There, are, I don't think you're going to get the 13 Republicans you need to vote for a 2.3 trillion package in the Senate right now, and they particularly don't want the timing of that bill to drop and disrupt the Amy Coney Barrett hearings before the election. That's the other part for the Senate that if you read between the lines. So this is going to come after the election. Now let's look at the, the different probabilities. If it's Trump and a, a lame duck Congress, we could just be in this same deadlock. You know, Trump having lost the election is a major wild card in how we handle governance and get through this period. We'll, we'll buckle up Wall Street, or if the Wall Street friends can get on the phone with him and tell him about what needs to be done to handle this responsible, responsibly, if there's a change of power, then then we need to start thinking through that. But Congress is is very deadlocked right now, and lame duck at least, if there is a chance to get it done, it's usually because that's the period and point where finally everyone's like, there's no pain, there's no going vote, you know, they'll just get it done. Don't that conventional wisdom though is we are in such a post conventional wisdom Washington right now with the mood <laughs> between the parties and the and the way the president has approached something as simple as this 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 stimulus package you 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 it's Groundhog's Day for you and me because each week we're talking about the economy we're talking about the state of it you're talking about the the basic electoral math of it more Americans have filed for unemployment claims since March then voted for President Trump in 2016. The, the electoral side of it, you think, would be, would be a no-brainer for Republicans. But again, a, a third of them in the Senate are probably have their eyes on 2024 right now. Pennsylvania has started to uh, look, the, the, the margin for Vice President Biden really got to be pretty tight. It's starting to move back in Vice President Biden's direction again in the newest polls that are out. Uh, what sort of a difference can tonight's debate make, Dan, this few days before the actual poll voting? I, President Trump is in the challenge now of having to to show that he uh, understands the criticism of how he acted during the first debate. But again, we, if there's four th things we've learned from the last four years, the leopard does not change his spots, not in one night of debating. President uh, Trump has been very, very consistent. Very consistent. And if he, if look, if he can get through tonight just focusing on a message uh, and I don't know if, if if I were him, I'd just be saying, look, I ran a good economy. We will beat this virus. We will get back to a good economy. I would just have him say that over and over again. Yes. What he should have been saying over and over again since March. What would you have Vice President Biden say? Biden would say, I would say Biden, if it's, this is a referendum on a, this is a job performance review coming up. Got it. 
and uh, I'm going to encourage you to not give him a raise and bonus. Uh, yeah, we're not extending this contract. Okay, uh, Dan, th this is this is all uh, this is all very helpful. Um, what is uh, what do you think, Mrs. Pelosi and Secretary Mnuchin have been talking about, and what's Mrs. Pelosi's real agenda here? Is she going to go quiet now? No, I think she she wanted to make sure that Democrats were continuing to be seen as active advocates for stimulus, even after they'd passed their major bills over the summer. She wanted to continue to be a voice for that. And I think she wanted to make sure that moderate Democrats, particularly those ones in vulnerable districts they flipped in 2018, that they appear to be doing well. Enough, but she didn't want vulnerable House Democrats to be seen as holding the bag for any failure in the stimulus talks. Right. So she's pushed that clock, and any blame now falls on the White House and Senate GOP. We're, we're hearing a little bit, and we're almost out of time, we're hearing a little bit about interference in the election outcome from Iran and from Russia. Is that a big deal at this point? Uh, is it going to make a difference? Will that be an issue going forward? Look, I think it's going to be an issue depending on how we look at the best practices for dealing with this kind of thing, the transparency. Look, I want to have it more of our law enforcement and intelligence leaders than politicians up there. You know, perhaps I think it was good that it was FBI Director Ray and others up there, although he's in hot water with the president now. But, you know, there's they, they've got to be clear about this, that, it, that it's intolerable and that there are consequences for the countries that try and do this to our democracy. We're going to be watching tonight. We may be back. Uh, if there's anything that, uh, you know, if there's if there's a big blow up tonight, uh, we may be back with the forecast special just with Mahaffey to give you some insights. Otherwise, if it goes according to plan, we, of course, will be back next week with another forecast and our great senior political analyst, Dan Mahaffey. Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency in Congress. Thank you so much for being with us again this week on the forecast. Thank you, Michael. Take care. Take care. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a we have a great treat coming up for you. Jenny Harrington is chief executive officer, portfolio manager at Gilman Hill Asset Management. Uh, she is a uh, new CNBC regular uh, and just a treat to talk to. Wait till you hear what Jenny has to say about what she's looking for for the balance of the year and for 2021, how she's advising clients to get through all of the noise when we come back on the forecast. Please stay with us. The forecast is sponsored in part by Positano Restaurante in Bethesda, Maryland, 4940 Fairmont Avenue. Positano Restaurant, great Italian food. And now back to the show and your host, Michael Farr. Thank you for joining us on the Farcast. And now, back to your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much again for joining us. October the 22nd. Here we are in around the around the far turn, coming into the stretch on a presidential election. The Senate is meeting today. The Judiciary Committee is going to vote on Amy Coney Barrett. There's some procedural issues, but it looks certainly that that will go to a full vote in the Senate on uh, Monday of next week. I think the outcome is expected, a foregone conclusion. Uh, Secretary Mnuchin 
Speaker Pelosi are still meeting, still trying to figure out whether we're going to have a stimulus bill. Our friend Dan Mahaffey says no and probably uh, going to wait till January. That has implications for the markets. Jim Labenthal told us what he was looking at in terms of a rotation, a uh, bit of a rotation and broadening of a rally in stocks. Right now, we have a great treat for you, ladies and gentlemen, a uh, new voice on the forecast and one of the, I think, uh, brightest and most thoughtful people you're going to hear from on Wall Street today. Uh, Jenny Harrington is CEO of Gilman Hill Asset Management. She is a portfolio manager of the firm's flagship equity fund. You've seen her uh, on CNBC, where she is a contributor. Uh, take it off and mute when, uh, when you see uh, Jenny Harrington on, on CNBC. Uh, she has an MBA from Columbia University, BA in economics from Hollins College. And for all of the times that uh, uh, Harry has looked at me and said, what are you, some sort of a Phi bait? Uh, and he's joking. When you're talking to Jenny Harrington, you're not joking. She was Phi Beta Kappa in college. So on top of, you know, being very thoughtful and having a lot of experience, she's also really, really smart. Welcome to the Farcast, uh, Jenny. Thank you so much for having me. That's the nicest um, introduction I've ever had in my life. Thank you. <laughs> well, it uh, has the benefit of being true. Uh, Jenny, as we're looking at markets here in this remarkable time in our nation's history and in the history of our economy and markets, what do you, what's your read here? Are we overvalued, undervalued? Do you stay invested? What are you worried about? <laughs> That's a big question. So overvalued and undervalued, I think you need to answer that by looking at the tale of two cities, right? So you have the broader market, the S&P, which, as we all know, has a disproportionate weighting to the top five stocks. And I think part of that is overvalued. If you are in the portfolio that I manage, that's a dividend income strategy, which has not participated in the strong returns this year, we're actually still behind. We are really undervalued. And yes. I think you just need to look at your pool. I don't think that answer, that can be answered today in broad terms. It needs to be looked at with the nuance of what strategy are you in, what market capital you know, is your portfolio in, where are you to determine over or undervalued. But I will say this, there's a lot of pockets of the market that are overvalued right now. Well, and uh, as you've mentioned, there are overvalued pockets and undervalued pockets. And, I, you know, this is really interesting to me. Uh, let's talk about your dividend strategy just a, a, a little bit. Um, what, how many stocks would be and, and, and are there bonds and what else is, goes into that strategy in terms of just structure? So the, the equity income strategy is just an all stock portfolio. There's about 31 stocks in the portfolio. And the objective is always to have a collective dividend yield on the portfolio of 5% or better. That's been true since I started managing it way back in 2001, and we've been able to achieve it. It's a funny thing because even with the market running up so much, it's still achievable. There's always there's always bargains to be had. Can I give one quick example? Please, yeah. Okay, terrific. So if we think about overvalued and undervalued, I think one of the prime examples that jumps into my mind, and this is a prime example of what's gone on in the market over the past seven months too, would be would be Viacom versus Netflix. So for example, we own Viacom in the portfolio. And we bought it back in May when it was being treated 
pretty much as if it was dead, as if its content had no value. And the reason was, was because, because the market freaked out when sports were, when sports were put on hold and by yeah. the beneficiary of sports. Yeah. So what happened was the stock price was cut by, you know, 60%. The dividend yield went to above six, um, 6% trading at about three times earnings. The magnitude of the earnings decline was over-exaggerated. At the same time, you had Netflix where everyone thought, oh my God, everyone will be home binge watching forever, blah, blah, blah. Money pours into Netflix. So the magnitude of that growth was also over-exaggerated. Now you have companies on both sides of the spectrum. I think that we see that valuation gap narrow. Clearly Netflix is going to grow faster than Viacom, but the valuation divide was too wide. So things like Viacom are still paying almost a 5% dividend yield, even though it's, it's grown a lot since I added it. And that's a neat kind of stock that you can look at in this environment where you can get income, where the perception might be disjointed from reality. You know, you, I think you bring up something else that's very interesting. You have a strategy for a portfolio. You have a clear, well-articulated discipline for investing, and it hasn't been keeping up. It hasn't been performing. And all managers, and I think all good investors, go through periods like this. You have a good strategy. It's a clear discipline. And you go through, of course, market cycles where you're in favor and out of favor. And one of the things, you know, if you're, if you, uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you're a portfolio manager, you're measured. You're measured all the time to some sort of a benchmark. And if you buy everything in the benchmark, then you won't have anything that we would call tracking error. You're not going to add any value because you just own the benchmark. If you're going to try to outperform, you've got to own stuff that's not in there or at concentrations that are different from the benchmark. And you're going to say, OK, I'm going to have tracking error. Sometimes tracking error is good because that's when you outperform, uh, but it's going to go against you at some point. You know, Jenny, we have, all of us have clients and, and have been through these periods where our strategy is not the hot seat today. Mm. How do you keep emotionally balanced? How do you adhere to your strategy? And how do you not chase sort of the next hot dot to get it in there to kind of make yourself feel better uh, from an investment discipline point of view? So in some ways, this is easier for me than others because of the dividend nature of the strategy that I manage. So because it's dividend oriented, it's always pumping cash out, right? So if a client has a million dollars and they're getting $50,000 a year of income and they rely on that and they need that income, then it's kind of easy to stick with the strategy because what you can say is, hey, we could change, but guess what? Your income will be gone. Because if we go to an S&P-like strategy, the dividend yield will some, suddenly become 1.7%. Your 50000 goes to 17000 So that part is easy. And it actually, it, it stiffens my spine to say, I have a mandate to produce 5% or more. But I think if we're going to speak more broadly, I think to keep clients in, you yourself need to be a student of market history. And you need to try to educate your clients as well and bring them your knowledge and your training. So some of the great things that I learned in my time at Newberger and in my time at Columbia Business School and just as a student of the markets and working with phenomenal portfolio managers is how valuable that discipline is. I started in the business in 1997, just as the dot-com boom was taking off. And I remember being there, seeing portfolio managers who were great, look like 
you know, like dog chow. They looked awful for a few oh, years. Oh, you remember poor old Warren Buffett. They they were writing him off as being senile in the late 90s. Buffett doesn't get it anymore. Poor old thing. Oh, my right. God. Right. And so what we saw is we saw that mean reversion happen. And I think that's one of the things that you learn as a student of market history, too, is that it always mean reverts. I'm reading an awesome book right now, which I wonder if you've read, too, by called Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke. I love that book. It is a fabulous book. And yes, I've read it. Yes. So her whole thing is she was a professional po poker player. She also has a PhD in psychology from University of Pennsylvania. And her whole thing is if you have a process and a discipline and you know it works, then stick with your process and discipline and don't overemphasize resulting. So if you have in poker, say, 10 cold hands, you don't change your strategy. You don't right. change your process. You know it worked. Now, in poker, it goes very quickly. In the markets, it goes very slowly. So you yeah. might have three years of a cold hand, but you know your process is good. You know we mean revert. You know that cash flows matter and valuations matter. And all of that, I think, stiffens your spine to stick with it. But you need to pass that on to your clients. And having that foundation of a good trusting relationship and them knowing what they're in for, understanding the portfolio, certainly helps keep people in, in the tough times. You know, that notion, too, um, Jenny, of resulting, uh, that my decision was a good decision because the result was good, is a huge fallacy. And I, that was, to me, the most valuable thing I got from that book, that I could have a valid process that has a bad result, and it doesn't make my process bad, and I need to stick with that process because the process will, over time, lead me to success. A valid process will, and that I can't be hung up on these small decisions. So just because I haven't, uh, I, I haven't owned the hottest stocks that are up 50% in a year, or because I have a stock that just took a turn south, doesn't mean that I was wrong in my investment process. That's that's important for investors who, who like to second guess themselves. And somehow we all get go to those awful places where we just feel bad about our, our decisions. Oh yeah, and then you just need someone to call who will talk you off the ledge <laughs> over you, and you, over. <laughs> you you really do. You need that person out there who can say, okay, now just stop it and, and, and quit beating yourself up. All right, where do you see, let's, let's uh, uh, as we go through this election and this period of uncertainty, what are you telling clients and where are you finding opportunities? And you're not going to believe this. We're running out of time. Um, so with respect to the election, what I'm telling clients is, look, Dem sweep, Republican sweep, whichever it is, the reality is, is the long term outcomes of the market under either those of those scenarios aren't wildly different. And historically, all Republican um, re administrations market returns a little over 15 under Democrat, it's a little under 15%. So that I'm like, you know what, let's just block out the noise. With respect to where there's opportunity, as we come through this, come through the pandemic, come through the election, I think what we could do is we could look at businesses where there was significant disruption, but only in an episodic way, right, where there wasn't like real trend change. I know we're almost out of time. Do you want me to touch on those? Or are we please go right ahead? Okay. So things in our portfolio that I think are interesting, and this, these are in our growth portfolio, not in our dividend portfolio, but like Marriott, Ross Stores, Disney, American Express, these are companies that did have major disruptions because of this, Yes. but it's temporary. There's no trend change that'll permanently disrupt those. Also, none of those companies will have any effect whether Biden wins or Trump wins. It doesn't make any difference. Which, if, if you're going to go to Ross stores on November 5th to buy some new clothes, you're going to Ross stores no matter who won. If you're going to use your American Express to pay for stuff, 
you're going to pay for stuff no matter who wins. So I think I think those are the kind of companies that you can look at, the kind of investment positioning that you can do um, to say, like, what just tunes out the noise? What survives in any environment? What just tunes out the noise is one of the constant themes I've, I've always advocated. Uh, and, and you just really have to do sort through all of it. Go to your discipline. Take a look at the numbers because your emotions will take you to the wrong place most every time in market and investing. So uh, as if I can get a final bit of advice to you, because we've got we've got your clients listening, my clients listening, and then we, we get notes from all over the world, which is always so much fun. Um, Fred and Ethel are listening, and Fred and Ethel are pensioners, and they're, they're coming right down to that 65-year-old uh, critical time, and they're thinking, what do I do about all of this? What's the advice from Jenny Harrington? All right, I'm gonna actually steal the advice from Annie Duke. I say, look at the statistically probable outcomes. And that's what Annie Duke reminds us, statistically probable outcomes. Guess what? The market has trended upwards for the past 100 years, including the Great Depression, sorry, including World War II, including the Great Recession. We have been on an upward trend. Do you really think the pandemic, as bad as it is, is gonna derail that? No, you bet in human resilience, you bet in human entrepreneurship, and flexibility and that we're going to thrive and the market will thrive and we'll figure this out. So you stay on that upward trend and think about the statistically probable outcomes, which are pretty positive in the long run. Jenny Harrington is the CEO of Gilman Hill Asset Management. She's a CNBC contributor. And as you can hear, she is a very wise woman. Listen to Jenny Harrington, take it off a of mute on CNBC, and always share this forecast with all of your friends so they can listen and learn about Jenny Harrington. Thank you so much for being with us. You're great. Thanks for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for another week on The Farcast. We'll be back next week, maybe sooner if there's something explosive on the debates tonight. Otherwise, I thank you so much for listening. Keep the cards and notes coming. It's wonderful to hear from you. And please share us on your social media. For The Farcast, I'm Michael Farr. We'll see you next week.